Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. Today, we're talking to photographer Joel Meyerowitz. Joel Meyerowitz first made a name for himself as a street photographer back in the 1960s. Since then, he's experimented with a wide range of subjects and approaches. Some of you may know him for the book Cape Light. That was a definitive collection of color-saturated photographs of Cape Cod sunsets, porches, and back roads. Others may know him as the sole photographer to have been granted full access to Ground Zero in the aftermath of 9-11. Maybe because he has gone in so many different directions, Meyerowitz does not have the name recognition of some of his contemporaries. But this year, he's finally getting his due. Biden has published a two-volume monograph of his work from the past 50 years, and the Howard Greenberg Gallery in New York is midway through a two-part exhibition of that work. On today's podcast, we invited guest host Julie Burstein to speak with Meyerowitz. Burstein has interviewed Joel before on her own podcast, which is called Pursuit of Spark. She's also talked about his work in a TED talk she gave on creativity. Julie and Joel have a lot of warmth and mutual respect for one another, which led to a really wonderfully wide-ranging conversation for Tablet. It's a little bit longer than usual, but well worth your time, I think. So sit back and enjoy. So we're sitting here on a beautiful late fall morning in the office of Maggie Barrett, Joel Meyerowitz's wife, and I'm here to speak with the photographer Joel Meyerowitz. Welcome to Tablet. Yeah, good morning, Julie. Um, May I start with this photograph just above your head? I'm looking at a, a photograph that looks like an abstract, but also like the ocean. Is this part of your Elements series? Well, it was before I made the series, The Elements, but it actually was one of those images that informed my ideas about it, because in this case, there's almost no horizon. It's right at the very, very top of the picture. So the whole field is the water. But what was so appealing to me was one of those experiences that most of the time we don't see. We stand at the water's edge and we watch the waves lapping and we see the sunlight on the water and it glints and sparkles and makes a kind of um, star-like tinkle. But on this day, the water was slopping in some kind of sluggish way, as if it was thick. And as I looked at the water, I must have, my eyes must have glazed a little bit, or my focus must have changed so that I wasn't looking at the surface. I was looking slightly below it, perhaps. And I noticed that the light on the water was making writing. Yes. Like a kind of hieroglyph everywhere, rather than sparkling. And I thought, I don't think I've seen that before. I wonder if I could photograph that, because this is a moment that is, it feels unusual to me. And so I got out my big 8 by 10 inch wooden Deardorff view camera, and I made a, a sheet of film, and the image came out exactly as I saw, with this light writing on the water. And so I thought, well, it's not a trick of sight. It's, it actually is a phenomena that um, I feel like I'm witnessing for the first time. So it, it pleased me a lot. And it, ultimately, it, le- it led me to this idea that maybe I could photograph the essential phenomena of our life, air, fire, earth, and water, in a way that would not be 
conventionally or classically photographic, in which we sense we're near and something is far away. But I wanted to make it more of a flat field. And that's where this work has come now. Joel, what led you to pick up a camera for the first time? Well, I I was trained at university as an artist, and I was studying art history, and I was really only interested in painting and drawing. But when I was 24, I had a job in a small advertising agency in New York City, run by a wonderful woman who I think is still alive, and probably would be a great subject for this program. Her name is Estelle Ellis, and she was a dynamic businesswoman who really gave me a sense of what a woman really could be like, the kind of equality of it. When I was a 24-year-old, she was this tyro. Anyway, I I had designed a booklet, and my art director um, sent me out to watch the photographer he had chosen make the work for the booklet. And I knew nothing about photography. This photographer was Robert Frank, who is a great photographer, one of the world's greatest. I knew nothing of him. Anyway, at the the apartment that these pictures were made in, the subject were two young girls around 11 or 12 years old doing what they do after school, homework, makeup, cookies and milk, stuff like that. His photographs and his, the way he made the photographs, the fact that he moved and took a picture while he was moving and that they were moving and he never told them to stop was a blow to the head. What? You can do that? And as I watched him, each time I could hear the click of his Leica, I would look over his shoulder and I would watch that the gestures and the actions these two girls were doing, and I would seem to see them freeze on the click. And each of those clicks seemed to hold a moment, a suspended moment of life, as if it had reached some kind of apex of meaning. And it thrilled me. I was getting a lesson, a silent lesson in seeing. And I remember when I left the shooting, which was in Stuyvesant Town, New York City, and I went out on the street, suddenly everything on the street seemed to have import. Taxi, the guy's arm would shoot up, and and suddenly it looked like he was hurling a javelin. Or the way a mother would bend over a, a, a carriage and tie the string around the baby's hat, and the look at her fa- on her face, you know. These things became momentous to me, ordinary and momentous. And I, instead of getting in a taxi or getting on the bus to get back to the, the, the office, I kept on walking and walking. And it took me an hour or so to get back uptown. And when I got there, I thought... I'm quitting my job. And I went in and my art director said, how was the shoot? And I, and I said, it was great, Harry. I'm quitting. <laughs> and he said, oh, no. Was it that bad? I said, no, no. It was great, but I'm going to be a photographer. And, and he had a great answer. He said, you have a camera? And I said, no, I don't own a camera. <laughs> and he said, schmuck. You need a camera to take pictures. Here, take mine. 
and he opened his drawer and he loaned me his Pentax camera. And that was it. Uh, two days later, I finished designing the pictures when Robert brought up the, the photographs. I designed the book out on the street and I never looked back. 1962. It's 50 years right now. What an extraordinary experience. And to have Robert Frank, who was the preeminent photographer of that moment, be the person that you were there with. But in ways, it was probably better that you had no idea who he was. Absolutely. I I wasn't in awe or had any, you know, reserve or anything, or even any expectations. I was going down some guy, I was going to take the pictures. And here's this Swiss Jew who had come to America and and made his mark on this country in the most profound way. The dark poem of his book, The Americans, is, yes. is the great legend of photography. You grew up in the Bronx in the 1940s. What was that like? What was the, the city like then? Well, you know, my childhood was um, idyllic in some crazy way, although the block that I lived on ended at the elevated station, the Soundview station, or the Westchester Avenue station on the Lexington Avenue line, one could get on the train and go to you know 42nd Street in relatively little time. But across the street from the tenements that I lived in were empty lots in which a tributary of the Bronx River made its way through the empty lots on its way out to the East River and the Long Island Sound. So along those uh, banks were a kind of um, wilderness of animal life and, and bird life and human life, too, because not far from where I lived were, was um, a settlement of Italians and Irish immigrants that had managed to make their way to the East Bronx and lived along the water, along the the East River and the Sound. And the Irish were called the clam diggers because they worked the low tide. And the Italians had um, little farms. And and they brought in their produce on horse-drawn wagons that would come along my block. So we would get fruit and vegetables. We'd get fish on ice on, on these horse-drawn wagons. I mean, it was like the 19th century, you know, immigrants doing this. And, and during the spring and summer, um, hordes of Italian women, real peasants from Sicily and Napoli would come, all dressed in black and bent low to the ground, and they'd be cleaning the grasses for arugula and watercress and and dandelion greens and all the wild vegetation that was growing there that we didn't pay any attention to. So to have uh, this neighborhood, which ended on this open space, and, and it was a big block, it had... I mean, I don't know, there were several thousand people living on the block because the families were big families, you know, five, six kids in the family, and it was all Italians, Jews, and Irish. And so we had this ethnic mix that was rich, filled with um, physical and vocal life, you know, 
all these languages just you know our our uh, our courtyard windows um, faced other people's windows in the courtyard and my mother had um, a, a laundry line across the street with Mrs. you know Fortunato and so we were sending our laundry over to Mrs. Fortunato which <laughs> Mrs. Fortunato was sending her laundry over to us as we pulled on the lines and in this little courtyard would come Italian street singers in capes singing operas and men with grinding wheels for sharpening your knives and Jewish peddlers calling out, I cash old clothes. <laughs> and you would throw your old clothes down to this guy and he would, he would look at it and, he would, and then you would send a bag on a string and he would put his five cents in for the, the garments of yours that he was buying. And it was this trading stuff going on. So... I mean, it was wondrous to me and my buddies. And I had a gang of guys. We were about 15 kids, all my age. And, you know, a year or two above me, there were another 15 or 20, and a year or two below. The same. And so there were these tiers of gangs who played baseball and, and shot marbles and played cards and did all kinds of street stuff. It was, it was rich, really rich. And that combination, being on that edge of the street and the wilderness, sounds like it was perfect for a group of kids. Were you just given free reign to just go wherever you needed to go? Yeah, well, you know, there was a great thing. I once wrote about this in a book of mine. Um, we, were, we were free to go because on a block like that, there were always people who were on the lookout for any outsiders. You know, the block had its integrity the way a small town in Italy would have its integrity. And so there were always people, the yentas who were leaning on the window ledge or people who were sitting on the stoops who kept their eye out to see if strangers were coming through or going to make trouble or anything for their kids. And we would be out free to play. And when it was dinner time, time to come home, Mrs. Nazo, who was on my, my floor, Italian woman from Sicily, hardly spoke English. She could whistle through her teeth, but not by blowing out, like calling for a taxi, but she would whistle in like that, as if she was calling the sheep or the goats. And that whistle was so piercing that we could be almost a block away in the fields, and suddenly we would all like, stop like deer, you know, and we'd pick up our heads, and well, you know, and then we'd turn and we'd hear that sound coming and we realized, dinner time, Mrs. Nazo's calling for Danny to go home. <laughs> we all had to go. <laughs> but it was like she was herding the young Vitelloni in, you know, the young calves were being called back. So that, that was kind of special, you know, it sticks in my mind anyway. It sounds like there was a real mix of of people from different places. What was the Jewish life like in in the midst of the Italians and the Irish there? Well, you know, there was no local temple of any significance in our neighborhood. There were these small storefront shuls, you know, and the local one where I first started to get my Hebrew education, was run by a guy who owned the chicken store next door. He kept live chickens. And you'd go on Friday afternoon and choose your chicken for the first. Yes, right. And they all had eggs in them. You know, my mother would make soup and there would always be 
double egg, egg yolk eggs in the soup, you know. And since I was the firstborn, I would always get that. You know? <laughs> um, but the chicken flicker was also the rabbi. And, and so our, our experience, my experience of a kind of, you know, um, organized Judaism was really these old guys from far from, from Europe, from Russia, from Germany, who had fled some pogrom at some point. But the nature of Jewish life in, in the building and everything was more cultural than anything. We were, you know, we knew we were Jewish and that they were Italians and Catholic and, and they were Irish and Catholic. And <clears throat> we went to church with, you know, the guys and they went to, when, when we ever were being bar mitzvahed or something and we had to make a trek to a temple somewhere away, they would come with us. So we were in each other's lives in this way. And it was, I think, more centered around the holidays, not the holy days, the holidays. Um, but I think our identity was tied up in, in some sense to the way each of our parents conveyed this, this Jewishness. Like my, my mother, um, you know, only on, on the big holidays did she want to go to temple somewhere to make the trip. But on Friday night, you know, she lit the candles and she said a prayer for her dead parents. And, you know, she, uh, it was a little bit of mystical, a mystical moment. And, and she did it with a kind of tenderness. My father wasn't so involved in that, but, but she was. And, and I think that you see a ritual like that, the lighting of the candles, it speaks to something. The, myst- the mystical side of it, you know, and you realize, oh, these prayers that she's saying, and I have no idea if she said them well or fully, or if she did her own abridged version. I think probably that was true. But it gave me some sense of this uh, ancient past. And she would, my mother was a, someone, although her education was only up to high school, she read a lot, and she would sometimes read us Bible stories, you know, so that we had some sense of there being a tribe somewhere a long time ago that had, you know, stories to tell. And you mentioned um, in an email exchange that we had that that tribe extended to some of the Jewish luminaries of the, the 40s and 50s, too, for you, that seeing that there were Jews like Sandy Koufax or Albert <laughs> Greenberg went to my high school. <laughs> um, Benny Leonard was a boxer. My father was a boxer. He was, one, he was the first Golden Gloves champion in 1928. In his weight, he, wow. was a go- he had the Golden Glove. He wore it around his neck for years. And my father said, Benny Leonard, a Jewish boxer. And, you know, Hank Greenberg, a Jewish baseball player. So there were certainly those... Um, characters that played a role. But there was also, you know, my mother would say, look, Einstein and Freud. I mean, she didn't know what the hell Freud was doing, but she had heard this name. And, and, and you know, it was important for, for them to point out that there were Jewish luminaries. And, and I remember the pride they had in the fact that there were Jewish writers who 
were becoming famous, particularly around and after World War II. And my mother, as a reader, would would select books often just because Saul Bellow wrote it or Norman Mailer wrote it. I don't even know if she understood these books, but she would take them out and and read them. You were very little, but did the war play a big part? Was it part of conversation in your household when you were growing up? Totally. It was... Uh, I mean, I was born in 38, so by the time the war started, I was four years old, and I lived through the war, and I was, uh, uh, we were part of the war drive. I collected tin cans. Yeah. And my father was, um, because he had two children, and he was older, he wasn't um, sent to war. So he was made to patrol um, a bridge, and he was given a wooden stick, and his bridge was on Westchester Avenue and the Bronx River. There was the, the bigger form of the Bronx River went into the East River at Westchester Avenue, and there was a bridge. And my father had to patrol that bridge, and I would patrol it with him in the evenings. And I once asked him, I said, Pop, why are we patrolling this bridge? And he said, well, in case a German submarine comes in and comes into this river, he said, I'll be here to protect us. I said, well, <laughs> what will you do? And he said, oh, I have my stick. He said, when the submarine comes, he said, and it's going to be big, because the river was only about eight feet deep, <laughs> so nothing would, nothing would make it into the river. But, you know, wisdom said he had to patrol the river. He said, when that submarine gets here, he said, and it it gets stuck because it can't go under the bridge. He said, I'm going to bang on the top of its tower. He said, and the captain will come up and he'll open the door. He said, and I'll hit him on the head with a <laughs> stick. He said, that's how I'll protect it. He said, I thought, eh, that's good, Pop. Huh? So your father was a boxer, a Golden Gloves boxer. Your mother read a lot, had a up to high school education. When you came home at 24, I don't know whether you were still at home when you had this moment of, I'm going to be a photographer. But once you told them that this was where you were going, what did they say? My parents, in, in the best uh, supportive Jewish manner, always said to their sons, and I was the oldest, you know, you can do anything you want to do. They aspired for us to be doctors or lawyers, you know, professional people, but it was okay. And and then I started to actually get some recognition, and they were very pleased and proud of that, you know. I don't think they ever saw any of my shows, because they had already had moved to Florida by that time, but... Um, you know, when I had a show at the Museum of Modern Art, my mother could walk around Florida quelling to everybody else. My son's in the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> in those early days, you were really on the street. It sounds like you learned a lot from Robert Frank about capturing what was going on right there. What gave you the courage to go and take pictures of people that you didn't know and that were right there. You know, it's, it's interesting because, in, in a way, my father plays a stronger role than Robert Frank. Although Robert engaged me with the idea that you could move and take pictures and, and open my eyes, my father um, not only was a 
a boxer, but he was in vaudeville and he worked in the Catskill Mountains as uh, you know a tumbler, <laughs> the, the MC in the, in these hotels back in the twenties and thirties. And so, um, when I was with my father on the street, he was always nudging me and pointing something out. He would say, "Watch, watch this! Look at that!" And and I'd look, and there'd be two people coming down the street, and they'd slip on the banana peel. Or they'd bump into the telephone pole. Or they, I mean, something would happen. And he had this uncanny knack of reading the open-ended text of the street and knowing intuitively that guy A was going to argue with guy B and it was going to be charged in a certain way. And if we were close enough, we would witness this thing. And And... I traveled with him all over New York because his job was a salesman. And so he would go to all these various neighborhoods. And I just watched the way he worked and the way he related to people and the kind of fun he had in life and the way he pointed things out and his kibitzing. He was just an endless kibitzer in a way that was very charming. And I think what I picked up from him was that life was actually an invitation to participate, to see people doing things, to enjoy it, to interact with people and communicate, to take pleasure in the way the color of the sky looked or shadows that were being cast. He would, and he could draw and paint, too. He had, he had actually gone to the Art Students League. So he was, I, I think, open-eyed and open-hearted about the natural world and was free in his expression of it. And, and, you know, he wasn't one of these guys that sat home and read the paper and listened to the radio. He, was, he needed to be in the world. And I, and I think, you know, seeing him go off every day and get in his car and drive away instead of going on the subway to an office gave me a sense of, <clears throat> well, life is, uh, you go out and your work is being <laughs> in the world. So this this photography was a perfect translation for me. I love hearing you talk about that because I've heard you before talk about your own way of being in the world and looking. And it does sound like this is so much like what your father did, which is you're aware and waiting and getting a sense of what's going to happen, what might happen mm-hmm. next. Yeah. I, I remember one time with him, he... Uh, he would go in. He was selling dry cleaning supplies, and he was in some store with a guy, and I was in there with him, and they were just talking about, I don't know, baseball or boxing or women or you know they were kibitzing and everything, and then my father said, "Well, okay, see you," and and he went out, and I I walked along and I and I was pulling on his jacket and I was saying, "Pop, pop, you forgot to ask him for the order," because I always would see him write up an order, and he said. No, I didn't forget to ask him. If he has an order, he's going to give it to me. That's why I'm there, to Mm. pick up his order and everything. He said, you don't have to ask. They know why you're there. And we're just about at the car. The guy comes running out of the store and saying, Myers, because his name was Myrowitz, but he used Myers because he said, most people can't pronounce Myrowitz, you know. (laughs) So this guy came running out and said, Myers, Myers, here's my order. I need a drummer perk and, you know, I need paper and blah, blah, blah. My father looked at me and gave me that wink, you know, and I thought, (laughs) you don't have to ask. The world will know what it is that you're there for. 
or what you do. You just have to have a good time doing it, and the world will, will give you what you need. <clears throat> really important lesson for a kid, you know, because otherwise you're always begging in some way. You're, you're, you're anxious about it. And in a way, my father taught me to live without a, a layer of anxiety over everything which is very helpful. <laughs> in, yes. You know, if you're a freelance person where you don't know where the next buck is coming from, it's good not to have too much anxiety. And it's interesting, too, as a photographer, you're traveling around with this piece of equipment that, in a sense, people then know what you're there for because you're, that's what you do. Right. I mean, you're showing what, what, showing what you're working with, in a way. You're not, not hiding it. When I was working in Ground Zero... And I, and photography was banned. And I, you know, forced my way in. I didn't hide my equipment. I carried it full out on my shoulder, around my neck, in my hand. And I wasn't about to deceive anybody, even though it was a restricted zone. You know, I was. I was in a way. It was like daring them, uh, and, and it got me thrown out countless times, but I kept on coming back in because I knew I had to do this and I knew ultimately I would figure out how to beat the system. So, But you didn't hide anything. I didn't hide. Don't sneak around. Don't just do it straight away. Your work at Ground Zero is what introduced me to you. Huh. And um, it was when I was working at Studio 360, and I remember you coming in and yeah. having just an amazing conversation with Kurt Anderson, the host of the show, and talking about how this wasn't a choice for you in a way. You had to do this work. You knew you had to do this work. And I remember thinking to myself at that point that it it felt very much like what's called tikkun olam, that you couldn't repair the world, but by witnessing it, you were doing your piece to move us forward. Is that something that you think about in, in that particular work? The, was that part of oh, the... Yeah. Oh, a- yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have given it that uh, name. But my, my yearning as a native New Yorker to do something that was helpful and useful right after that happened. And and the feeling of helplessness, I think, that most of us had, because we couldn't go in and move steel or concrete or find bodies, right? They had already organized it in such a way that we were kept out. And I remember feeling, I've got to do something, and I didn't know what it was, and I was hanging out near the site, and by chance, I had an interaction with a, a, a woman police officer, not a good interaction where she threatened me and she actually poked me and told me not to, I shouldn't take pictures. I was in the crime scene when I was really standing on the sidewalk, which was public thoroughfare, not the crime scene. And we had this argument, and then she revealed that the mayor and the police commissioner had banned photography. And my jolt of awakeness was, you can't do that. We need this record. How are we going to tell the future what it was like for those people in there? And I suddenly saw my role as this is what I could do to help. I know how to make an archive. I mean, I had been working on a book for many years on the history of street photographer and I, on photography, and I had been in archives all over the world, and I understood something about 
their structure. Although I had never made one myself, I understood how they were structured. And so I thought, well, I could do that. And so, in a, in a way, it was so that I could tell the stories, these unseen-to-be stories. I could tell them to the world because someday we're going to want those stories. We're going to want to know the procedures that were developed. We're going to want to know the way people spent their time, the, the quality of their efforts, the kindness. I mean, really, the spiritual quality inside Ground Zero was the glue that held it together. I, I have never experienced that kind of uh, uh, intense, essential spirituality in a, a, a limited four-block work zone. There was something there that had to do with the loss of life, the attack on the country. It had really tikkun fully. Joel, is there a particular image when you think about those photographs that captures what you're talking about, about that, that spiritual feeling that was there? Oh, I witnessed it so many times in, in a variety of ways. I'll give you a couple of examples. One, one, um, one late afternoon, and I saw this many, many times. This is one example. I, I was on Church Street, the eastern border of the site, and... Um, some worker came out, probably a fireman, came out weeping, wailing and weeping, and he just stood on the street, and he was just, it was like he couldn't take another step. He was exhausted. He had probably just seen some horrifying, mutilated remains. And suddenly, from nowhere, it seemed, a couple of other workers came and they stood near him and a couple of cops came by and then suddenly a, uh, um, a chaplain who had a, a, a jacket on, said chaplain, appeared and they all sort of stood around this guy laying on the hands and, and holding him and they made a little circle and their heads bowed and they just sang a little song together on Church Street in the fading light. I have a photograph. It's in, it's in my book, Aftermath. And you see them standing there, you know, rumpled, dirty, you know, with hard hats and boots and gloves and masks. And they made this little um, embrace, basically, a huddle. And, and they just brought him back to, you know a group, a family environment so that he wasn't alone with uh, the fatigue and the horror of what he had seen. And I saw that repeated so many different times and in so many different scales, both the monumental scale of a day when all the family members were allowed onto the site. Thousands of family members came and they sat on folding chairs that were brought out, and no political speeches were made. There were a rabbi, a priest, a few other people from the spiritual community said some words, and it was like they made a benediction. And we sat there in the sunlight, and behind the platform where the speakers were was the smoking ruins of the World Trade Center. So that was the vision. And on on Church Street were all the thousands of people 
it was, it was something. Hearing you talk about it and knowing those photographs, one of the things you do as a photographer, as an artist, is you take the overwhelming immensity and you give us a specific detail, which allows us then to find our own ways into it. I mean, hearing you tell that story, which sounds so much like what I think many of us feel a lot of the time, which is overwhelmed and then connected and then finding our way through to a specific. And that's what those photographs I know do for me when I look at them. Yeah, well, I I think that connection is the first step to being creative as an artist. You have to have connection. And, And it may be that the way I was raised... You know, my my mother's fantasy life from books and my father's street life. The fabric of that in the house was all about a certain kind of sensitivity. You know, my mother would weep when she would read to me. She read to me and, and really taught me to read before I went to school. I was reading, you know, and I had a library card when I was five years old. My mother was always so proud of that. I was toilet trained at six months. <laughs> That's what she swore. And I, I had a library card at five. <laughs> uh, but I think that, that the, the emotional uh, connection that was available in my you know, tenement environment in the Bronx was something that stayed with me because it is emotion that often moves me to feel something about it. And it's true, as you say, Julie, the, the enormity of, of the world in front of us all the time and the complexity of it isn't easily funneled, you know, unless you're funneling it through the opening of um, a, a mediation through emotion or some kind of connection. And that, that portal opens a vast space inside, in our heart and our mind, and it allows one to then reflect. And it's often instantaneously, with photography, this action of of visualizing and feeling and raising the camera and saying yes, because it's a very affirmative thing, taking a picture. It's hitting the button. You know, you don't have to mix up a pot of paint and smear it on a canvas, you've got to run back to the studio for that. You're in the world at large, and something is happening, and you're part of it at that moment. And without connection, you make dislocated, sort of isolated and cool photographs. And I, and I think it's important. I mean, cool is an important characteristic, because you need to have a little bit of distance. In spite of the fact that you have an emotional connection, you need to be just... Um, separate enough so that it doesn't um, weigh your pictures down with sentiment. It's a very fine line between the sentimental and that just separation. And honing that line all the time is the question, I think, that certainly visual artists that use a camera uh, have to deal with. So you've been taking pictures now for 50 years since your your boss gave you his Pentax and you left the work that you'd been doing. 
Where are you looking now? What what are what are you investigating now with your camera? Well, it's it was a, a liberation actually to hit a fifty year line in the sand and to do a big retrospective book and exhibition. And and the book is called Taking My Time. And I took my time for this fifty years to realize these things and now that it's complete I feel like I said everything I needed to say of of that work and that 50 years and I feel this incredible sense of liberation right now and I found myself last summer we Maggie and I spent the summer in Tuscany and I found myself making a body of work that I have never ever addressed before and it was caused by uh, a freak of nature. And you see, you know, one never knows how work develops. But in Tuscany, it was 95 degrees every day for three months, some days hotter, but never lower. And it didn't rain once in three months. And the earth was cracking and dry, the crops were dying, and it was impossible to be outside between 1.30 and 4.30 every day. And I'm a summer guy. I like to swim and bike and be out. I mean, I spent all those years on Cape Cod doing that. And there I was in, in Italy, and I was forced inside. And it really got me upset, I have to say. What am I doing here? I want to go someplace where it's raining. Anyway, we had a little tiny, um, like an attic-like space in this old barn that we were living in wasn't a villa. It was a working farm with an old barn. And I started to make some still lives where I moved objects around. I have never done that in my life, but I had a collection of a few pieces of gray sort of pewter ware, old junky stuff that I had picked up to give to a friend. And they were, they lacked color. And I was up in this dark attic-like loft, and I started to make Still life's in the dark, in, the, in, the, in this soft, grayish light. And I'm known for color and light. And here I was making color photographs of gray objects in the dark. <laughs> it was thrilling. I had a dialogue, it seemed to me, with the famous but long-dead painter, Italian painter named Morandi, Mm -hmm. where really for his entire life, for 60 years, he moved around eight objects on a tabletop. That's all he did. And so I found myself in dialogue with Morandi, who always inspired me, but whose work I never replicated in any way. And after a few weeks of, of, of communicating with him in this silent dialogue, I said thank you, and I moved him aside, and I moved into a new place with these things. And I sort of found my own voice and my own environment. And I spent the summer making these strange still lifes. And I'm now just beginning to print them to see what it was that was, uh, that was going on for me. I saw some of those on your Facebook page this summer and was thrilled by them myself. And thrilled also that here you are in your 70s exploring something entirely new. 
Yeah, well, there's no end to exploration. You just have to be curious. If you're not curious, it ends. You know? And I think that the drawing the line in the sand thing, after 50 years of working the way I've worked, which is in the world at large, and I, I'm not that I'm retreating from it, but it's I, I'm open to seeing what else comes to mind by being this age with these limitations and advantages because 74 gives you both of those things at the same time. And so what do you make of that? That's the question I'm asking. What, what is it possible to be inspired by now? I think that's a wonderful place to end this conversation with an opening up towards what comes next. Joel Meyerowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Julie, it was a really great pleasure to be speaking with you. Joel Meyerowitz's two-volume monograph is called Taking My Time. It's just out from Fiden. If you should find yourself in New York City sometime between now and January 5th, you can catch the second half of a retrospective of his work at the Howard Greenberg Gallery. And if you'd like to see some of the photos that Joel spoke about in today's conversation, go to our website, tabletmag.com. We've got a great slideshow of his work there. Our guest host today was Julie Burstein. Julie is a radio producer, a public speaker, and the author of Spark, How Creativity Works. I'm Julie Subrin, the producer of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you'll join us again next week. 